Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm your co-host. I am joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by my good friend and real estate extraordinaire, Daniel Foch. Dan, what's going on, man? Not much. Just wrapped up a busy weekend. A little bit relieved that the schools aren't on strike tomorrow. Anxiously awaiting this snowstorm that we're supposed to be getting in the greater Toronto area. Buffalo in the US just got absolutely smoked and we just got shipped two brand new snowblowers from a partner of the show. Troy Bilt sent us two snowblowers to make some social media content with. So I'm pretty fired up for that. And I I kind of, for the first time in my life, want to get dumped on with snow. (laughs) Yeah, we've both been busy lately, man. I mean, our partners, the group of investors that we work with, kind of our, our, the new power team we put together that we're really excited about. We just took a new 10plex under contract, which is great. Dan, I know you've got a bunch of new listings going on. I've been taking on some new clients and, and helping some existing ones navigate through these treacherous times we're in. We've been going to a lot of events again, which has been great. We just finished up a sweet prop tech, fintech event, which is property technology and, and financial technology. We're going to be starting to work with some of these prop tech and fintech companies on both the real estate and the lending side of things. So it's been a, it's been a busy couple of weeks. And then later on this week, probably by the time this airs, I guess, we will be flying out to Alberta, baby, to do our first two live events, which I am not nervous at all about. I'm totally fine. It should be good. I'm, not, I'm actually not nervous. <laughs> I feel like we have an awesome community and I'm, I'm just excited to meet everybody. Other cool update is we have, we've merch and it's not like just us, <laughs> us trying to to monetize and, and make merch for sellout purposes. They're actually hilarious shirts. They're Christmas sweaters and they say Feliz Navidad on them and they look like ugly Christmas sweaters. So I bought one in every color to be honest. I'm going to wear them to every Christmas party. I basically just made something <laughs> that I wanted to wear and shared it with some people on social media and just everybody loved them. So we've already sold a bunch. We're going to do a contest giving away a bunch of these things. We'll probably give away 10 before Christmas. So stay tuned for that. Nick and I will post the day this episode comes out. We're going to do a collaboration post on our on our Instagrams. If you share it and comment on the, the Instagram posts, we're just going to randomly give away sweaters to people who do that. So do those things. Look out in your DMs and we'll potentially ask you for sizing and then a mailing address. And we're just going to be sending out sweaters because they're sweet and we want everybody to wear them. Hell yeah, we do. And you know what? Ugly Christmas sweater. Are they ugly? I think they look pretty nice, but you know, I guess ugly is a loose term when it comes to Christmas sweaters. So they look nice and warm. That's all you got to know. Yeah. It's like a gingerbread house version of like a burr fourplex looking yeah. structure. And it, I and thought it, says it was, it was definitely a multifamily. So. Definitely a multifamily. It, yeah. A small multi though. Yeah. It's accessible <laughs> for our for our users or listeners. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's get into today's episode, and and I'm excited about this one because we put out a couple different types of content, but this is one that, this is something called evergreen content, so you can listen to this the day that it comes out, you can listen to it a year from now or several years from now, 
And these principles that we are going to be talking about still remain true because they're just solid, proven methods used by one of the world's largest real estate companies. So before we jump into the episode, let's talk a little bit about that company. Yeah, so the tweet off the deck is Bruce Flat is worth four point four billion and you've likely never heard of him as the CEO of Brookfield. He has grown assets under management to seven hundred and twenty-five billion and he has shared his thirty plus years of knowledge in podcasts and interviews. I refined it into fourteen lessons every real estate investor should read. And Brookfield is a Canadian company, right, Nick? It sure is. So let's put some context to Brookfield. Again, assets under management, $725 billion, and that was in 2022. A Canadian multinational company that has one of the world's largest alternative investment management companies. They were founded in 1997 and reported a revenue of $76 billion USD last year. Brookfield has iconic properties, real estate properties across the globe in all real estate sectors, including office, retail, multifamily, industrial, and hospitality. They've diversified and now have major interest in private equity, infrastructure, credit, and insurance, and even renewable energy. So a lot of this information was taken from one of our recently found and new favorite Twitter accounts. Shout out to at the Duke of Dirt, which is a great name. I love that name. So I'm just going to reread that original tweet right there. And then we're going to get into each one of these 14 lessons, principles that Mr. Bruce Flat has gone over of uh, and put out after his you know 30 plus years experience. And what Dan and I are going to do is unpack each one of them have a bit of dialogue back and forth and try to make it as applicable to you as possible through stories and experiences that we have that match up with these principles. So again, Bruce Flat is probably worth 4.4 billion. Sorry, Bruce Flat is worth 44 billion and you've probably never heard of him as the CEO of Brookfield. He has grown assets under management to 725 billion. He has shared 30 plus years of experience and knowledge in podcasts and interviews. And thank you to the Duke of Dirt for refining it all and putting it into these 14 lessons that every real estate investor should read. Dan, take us away with number one. Okay, number one, encourage small mistakes, but avoid the big mistakes like the plague. Small mistakes are a result of testing the limits of where you are going. It is encouraged within the organization, but big mistakes like losing capital, and you remember this from Warren Buffett's rule number one, don't lose money, are to be (laughs) mitigated at all costs. Interesting, actually, because Brookfield has a pretty rich history with Warren Buffett, actually. Buffett was a big shareholder, and he actually most recently had to pay them out $130 million to buy Brookfield Asset Management's stake in Buffett's fast-growing real estate brokerage, which is Berkshire Hathaway Home Services in the US. And actually, during, I think before Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, so Buffett around 2008 made the call. You know, He said, houses are a very depressed asset class. Interest rates are cheap. If there was a way to buy houses at scale, I would do it. And he didn't feel that there was a way to do it. Since then, we've seen a lot of people actually flock into that trade. But his Try the best way, it, that, yeah, yeah, well, and do it well, right? Like I think um, J.P. Morgan just announced yesterday that they're planning to buy one billion dollars worth of single-family homes to rent. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think Buffett's 
best way to get exposure to that was Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, which took over a bunch of prudential real estate offices. My parents were actually prudential realtors back in the day and north of the border, Royal Page took over most of those prudential assets, but they unwound that prudential brand. And Berkshire Hathaway Home Services is one of the biggest real estate brokerages in the States now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's Warren, dude. He he does not miss. And, you know, his first rule, don't lose money. I mean, that's a great rule to abide by. But if you look at it, you know, encourage the small mistakes. I do like that. I mean, Dan, you and I work together on a lot of different stuff. We're part of several different teams. And guess what? I've seen you make a mistake before. I make them all the time. But what happens when we make a mistake? We look at it, we analyze it, we look at why it happened, and we build a system around it to avoid that mistake from happening again. So as real estate investors, you are going to run into roadblocks. You're going to have hardships. You're going to experience things that you've never experienced before. And probably some of those are going to be your fault. You're going to make mistakes. I think what we're getting at here is small mistakes are okay. Build systems around them. Experience them, learn lessons the hard way, and build systems around them so you don't fall into that same mistake. Yeah, for sure. Grow incrementally, but also fail incrementally and, and grow from that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That good for number one? 100%. All right. Number two, all geopolitical events shall pass. These events come and go. And Bruce Flatt has led his company through 9-11, the global financial crisis, most recently COVID. And every single time the business has hit some rocky times, but always came back and came back stronger than before. I mean, if this doesn't hit home with you and me and every listener right now, I don't know what does. I mean, it feels like the last two years has been nothing but geopolitical events, whether it's war, inflation, energy crisis, the list goes on. We don't need to rehash all the shitty stuff that's been happening. Let's focus on the good. And I think that's the message that I'm getting from here, right? And you and I talk about it all the time. Drown out the noise. Don't let the Russian gas crisis or the oil crisis in Europe or anything like that dictate if you're going to buy that duplex or not. So drown out the noise and focus. What do you, what do you think about this one, Dan? Yeah, I would liken it to the idea of habit forming or deferral of gratification, right? If you are living in a reactionary way or if you're doing things in pursuit of one thing at a time, like these geopolitical events especially, you're not necessarily building a habit or an asset in this case that is time-tested and true that will last in good times and in bad. And what we encourage is to seek out assets, investments, real estate or any type of investment that you'd be happy holding in spite of all of these things because yeah, they will pass. There have been a lot, we've been hit with a lot of worst case scenarios as real estate investors lately. And I think, (laughs) and I think we're going to be, continue to be hit with them. And I think about these things a lot. I think about downside risk a lot. Think about them and control for them. Think about controlling the things that you can control, which is in most cases, the way that you react to these issues. Yeah, I love that. That's that's really good. Okay, the next one on the list is the compounding of returns is an incredible miracle of finance and human existence. On top of capital compounding, Flat believes in personal compounding. Everything you learn is additive. And if you keep at it day after day, you too shall realize a miracle of compounding. Oof. That is that's deep. But I spoken but I like, love it. spoken like a, a Disney movie. <laughs> well, this podcast is PG after all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that speaks for itself. And that actually kind of ties exactly into what you were just saying from the number two, right? Which is, 
you know, things will pass. If you compound yourself, and Dan, do you want to just give a quick maybe refresher on compounding and the theory of compounding and why we love it so much as investors and business people, but how that same practice of compounding interest, for instance, could have an effect on your personal life if you're compounding something, let's say in the gym or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, for sure. So the idea of a, a compounding return is that it accumulates, right? So you can earn a return on things that you've already earned a return on. So in the gym, it would be, you know, like going back and rebuilding a muscle that you've been working on for year after year after year. Every time you go, the return on the investment compounds, right? Knowledge is the same way. You get a base knowledge and then you put more knowledge on top of it. Relationships can compound as well. And that's what he's referring to in this, in sort of outside of the business life. But also, we know that investments compound. So, you know, it's basically the performance of investments return over time and then cumulatively over the series of or over the lifetime of an asset. So, you're, every time you earn interest or every time you earn a return on something, that's added to the value of the asset and it adds or it, it compounds. You earn the next time you earn a return, you earn it on that new found value that, that's been added to it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, a super simple way of explaining it is, is really kind of the snowball down the hill metaphor, right? It, it's start small and and as you keep pushing or or as it keeps growing with time things start to grow if you keep on putting that work and so whether it's your small biceps or weak calves in the gym or if it's buying that third rental property it's the same concept let's move on to number 4 here which is great investments adjust revenues over time so contrary to fixed investments most real estate investments enable revenue streams to track the inflationary environment Grocery stores are notoriously strong in inflationary times. They pass increased cost to the consumer. Man, that is relevant these days. I'm sure everyone listening to this has gone to the grocery store sometime in the past couple of days, couple of weeks, and things are a little pricier than they were last year, the year before. I mean, I'm going, I'm leaving with two bags. Each bag at this point is like minimum 50 to $75. So what we're getting at here is make sure that your investments can grow with you and make sure that they can not only just grow with you, but they can also adapt to the changing environments and that within those changing environments, they still prove to be good investments. Yeah, I think, you know, the example of commercial tenants, especially grocers being able to cost push that inflation on, it's true. And I mean, the reality is 2022 is an exceptional example. Grocery stores just put record profits on the board, even though <laughs> the house and I mean, maybe it's tone deaf of them to be jacking their prices up and or jacking their margins up with prices. But he's not wrong that there's a lot of different assets or a lot of different reasons that real estate can can hedge against inflation. Rents are very inflationary as well, right? Cost of living. A lot of these, the real estate asset in a lot of cases does track well to pushing inflation onto the last person to pay that dollar out of the economy through rent. Which is you and I. and Yeah, you and I or yeah, yeah, even through our groceries, who the, which then pays the rent of the, the grocer in the plaza, right? Number five, biggest mistake an investor can make is selling at the wrong time. The many mistakes, the many great mistakes Flat has witnessed are made by those who finance their assets incorrectly. Make sure you have sufficient term and ensure you are capitalized to survive a downturn survive in advance. So you notice that he talks about how the 
mistakes are made by those who finance the assets incorrectly, especially in an environment where we're in right now, where some people might be pushed to liquidate. Like, I don't really know if we're at that point yet where people are like, oh, liquidating the asset is the best way to ease this financial pain. But because I think we're starting to see a lot more people hold on and choose to rent, wait and see, rent and see we're seeing. But when you get to higher stakes assets and bigger credit facilities and more vulner- vulnerability and, and recession, they can put stress on it and it can force you out of an asset even when you haven't really maximized the potential of it. So there's an interesting insight. Yeah, very much so. And, and I think it circles back to an episode that we produced a couple of weeks ago, which is should you sell at a loss, which kind of explored that when do I sell if I'm being forced to sell? You know, What is the right time to buy? What is the right time to sell? Let's move on to number six here. Flats for investment guidelines. The first being invest where they possess a competitive advantage. Number two, acquire assets on a value basis. So invest where other capital is not. Build sustainable cash flows is number three. And the fourth and final is superior returns require contrarian thinking. Let's just quickly unpack each one of those because there's a lot in there. So Mm -hmm. invest where they possess a competitive advantage. I mean, that is just rule number one, right? You don't want to go into a saturated market. And if you're going into a saturated market, you better have something that the market doesn't have yet. What do you think about the second one, Dan? Yeah, I think two and four are quite similar and they tie into the one that you just mentioned as well. So number two says acquire assets on a value basis or invest where other capital is not. And then number four says superior returns require contrarian thinking. You know, you hear this where when they zig, you zag or be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy to quote, I think it's Charlie Munger who said that one. I I think that Brookfield and the attraction that Buffett and Munger have had to BAM resonates with their investment thesis here. And when you focus on value and not chasing what other capital is, like you avoid things like the FOMO driven pump and dump that we just saw in the Canadian real estate market, you know, and sometimes it means it's it's hard. You gotta you have to have discipline to do that. This one will be covered in the next main point. But and then I think that, you know, the way that you can actually do that have that competitive advantage, create that value and have that contrarian thinking, at least in Canadian real estate, is not think about capital appreciation. Because he says build sustainable cash flows in point number three there in his four investment guidelines. And that is a differentiator. That is a competitive advantage against a real estate economy, a real estate market that has been obsessive about speculation, speculative value and, and a capital appreciation in Canada for the better part of two decades. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, just to touch on number three, again, the sustainable cash flow. It's funny because we we preach this all the time, especially for if you're a semi-new investor, you've got only a couple properties, you need that cash flow. But this is a guy with $725 billion in assets under management dictating the same principles. So let's yeah. keep let's keep moving here. Dan, take us to number seven. Yeah, number seven. I love this one. It says, be cautious of short-term objectives. Short-term horizons leave little margin for error. It's chilling to hear that based on what we're seeing happen in Canadian real estate right now. Flat acquires almost all assets with the thesis of owning forever. If you don't like the asset to hold forever, the underlying fundamentals may be flawed. We talk about that a lot here. Yeah. So are you saying Bruce Flat is like the captain of Team Never Sell? Yeah, I think he's like <laughs> I think he's the the mascot actually. He's like the the god that's drawn on the jersey. <laughs> I love that. 
I mean, that one's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's think long-term. That's what real estate is, everybody. It's, you know, don't buy this to, unless it's a flip, don't buy something to flip in a year. All of the investments I own, I have a minimum 10-year plan, like bare minimum 10-year plan, other than, of course, the one flip we have, or if it's a if, it, if it's a different exit strategy, but you got to think long-term. Number eight, build based on integrity. To be in business for a long time, you must act with integrity in all aspects of business. It starts from the top and is reflected in all sectors of business. For me, this really speaks to reputation, right? We can call it integrity, and but especially with if, if you're looking at a more micro example, each one of us is our own brand. We don't have the name of Brookfield to abide by, but like real estate investing is a small community. And if you start doing shady things or or aren't paying your contractors on time or whatever whatever it is that is going to have a negative impact on your integrity, on your reputation, that can be the quickest thing to destroy. I mean, we've seen it a number of times with executives in the past couple of years, right? These people that have built careers over decades that it's now coming out that they are not so great people and boom, now they are outcast from society and ostracized from their, from their former glory. So yeah, reputation, I mean, integrity. Just, yeah, look at pop culture right now. I mean, you've got Theranos and uh, FTX happening, oh. right? Like these are people <laughs> whose whose lives are are over because yeah. they they acted against their word. Uh, number nine here: incentives are key. The best way to treat the capital like your own money is to incentivize people based on the performance of the investment. Correctly devised incentives empower employees to think and act like an owner. Love that. It's amazing. And I think that you can even kind of like push that into property management, principal agent problems with maybe prospective realtors. I mean, we deal with this a lot with professionals who are bringing us portfolios and stuff like that. It's like we really want to build that rapport and it's an incentive system to make them feel like or to make them act like or see things like the way that we would. And similarly, like you you talk about treating tenants exceptionally well, right? Building the incentive for them to treat the home like it's their own. Exactly. Exactly. I think, you know, incentives can be a very powerful push or pull factor. So choose what choose the task and kind of reverse engineer and see what would incentivize people to get what you want done in the best way possible. Number 10. Buy at less than replacement cost. I should have let you read this one because I know this is, we're going to have some shit, stuff man. to talk about here. <laughs> Buy at less than replacement cost. Buying below replacement cost is more often the best indicator of value. When you own assets at less than replacement, newly built competitors will be at an inherent disadvantage. So before we dive into this, Dan, let's talk a little bit about replacement cost. Yeah. So it's assumed that the economic life of a of a building is 100 years, let's say, in some cases. A home can last 100 years, no problem. And so you can depreciate the value of – I think actually it was just discussed on the accounting episode, but I believe you can depreciate the value of a building by – is it 4.5% a year, he said? So let's assume that you know the house is 50 years old that's cut its value in half. Let's just say for 
hypothesis sake, but today it would cost you 500 grand to rebuild that house. The house in Cornwall that we just bought actually would be a great example, right? The replacement cost, and when you go to get your insurance, the easiest way to know what the replacement cost of your asset is, is what the insurer tells you it's worth and what it would cost to rebuild it. So the, the place in Cornwall, we just bought it for what, 200 grand, and it was insured for 415,000. So we just bought that house for a negative land value of 215 grand, right? Yeah, which is, I mean, I love that deal. But essentially, replacement cost is, is exactly what it sounds like, right? If there was nothing on that plot of land, how much would it cost you to build a cash flowing duplex that has an 8% cap rate? Well, it probably cost a hell of a lot more than the $200,000 we just paid for it. So, what Bruce is getting at here is look for the inherent value. That's another way that you can hedge against inflation too, right? Because the cost of replacing things is always going up. So if you're buying things that are depreciated, then you're hedging against the inflationary environment. So yeah, let's jump to the next one here. Number 11, never become too high or too low. The news media always projects information too drastically. When one consumes this information, it is important to distill it while keeping a steady hand at the wheel. This is one of the reasons that we really, really try and present a balanced market view and why I try and have a balanced market view because it can be hard, man. You go on Twitter and it's like the world's about to end. Like literally oh, like every we're time. dead tomorrow. <laughs> I know. I know. Why is Twitter like that? And then you go on TikTok and it's like, we're all going to become millionaires tomorrow. Just like lever up and bro down, right? So, so, so split your time evenly me. between Twitter and TikTok and you'll be – confused, sad, happy, I don't know. Balance, I think. Balance, the there we go. Yeah, no, I mean, this one, I, you know, this one goes back to one of our, I don't want to say our principle, but something we talk about all the time, something we've already mentioned in this episode, which is drown out the noise, right? I mean, the stuff we see in the media, and we live in a in a world of, of clickbait headlines as well, right? I mean, I don't know how many times I've had conversations with people, and they've referenced an article to me, the title of that article that that is semi-misleading, I've actually read the article. I've brought up points to them from the article and they've admitted to me afterwards that they only read the headline, but for some reason they felt confident enough to speak about it afterwards. So know your stuff. And again, I think drown out the noise because everyone's got opinions these days and, and they're going to project them on you. Number 12. This is a good one. Biggest mistakes. Number one, believing bad real estate would be okay if acquired cheaply. This is good. I think this is a huge misconception. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that. Number two, starting too large in a new market or asset class. Again, this is not something we see all the time with new investors, but this is something that investors maybe it's it's like the shiny object syndrome, right? Oh, I you know here's a flip opportunity. Oh, but I could burr this. But there's this great industrial thing that I just saw. So I think that that plays a bit as well. Number three, getting the incentives wrong, going back to his earlier point about incentivizing people. And number four, being too lenient with financial covenants in an up market. And number five, taking on development risk in new jurisdictions. Because, wow, we all know that, I mean, we've seen this go south for so many developers in so many different jurisdictions across Canada where the red tape, I mean, you may as well wrap these developers up like mummies in red tape because it just traps them. Yeah. And if they don't have the experience with that jurisdiction, maybe we'll just take this list back from the bottom to Let's the top. Let's do it. So, Let's do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So taking on development risk in a new jurisdiction, I mean, as new landlords or as small landlords and, you know, potential small developers listening to this show, we need to be thinking about this because a lot of us 
take will be taking on new development in a new jurisdiction for the first time. And so if you don't have relationships with that municipality, if you've never been through the bureaucracy, and I'm not not using that as a euphemism or a, you know an insult, I'm just saying it is it's a literal bureaucracy. It is what it is. Yeah. No, it's a yeah. bureaucratic system, yeah. right? So yeah. if you haven't been through that bureaucratic system, you're going to make assumptions. You're not going to think about worst case scenarios. You're not going to be able to control the outcomes, and you're going to have expectations that might not lead you to, down a successful path. Development risk is a huge risk for people, even developers like this, because you have capital costs that you're paying, you're deferring income because maybe you have vacant suites or whatever it is because you're waiting on paperwork. Development means that you're changing the use basically of the land. You're improving the value of the land, the entitlement of the land. You're increasing what you can do with it. And that can be if you buy a duplex and you want to add two units to it, you need to go get a minor variance or a zoning bylaw amendment in a lot of cases to do that. That's a development. It's a small one, but it's a development. And taking on that development process means risk. If you're buying this property, assuming that you're getting four units, and now all of a sudden it's going to take you three or four years to do that, you made an assumption and now there's risk associated with that assumption. So, And that goes all the way back to, I think Bruce is one of his first points with the Small mistakes are okay, but that would be a big mistake because that would be loss of capital, right? If you have investor funds tied up for for years while you're trying to push a project through in a new province, a new city, a new a new council, a new board members that you have to deal with, yeah, I mean, think people do different things in different places, and and you know, it, it can't just be it's not a, a blueprint from one to the other. For sure. I'll go up to number four, but I'm going to add in number three. So number four says being too lenient with financial covenants in an up market. If, and this is getting the incentives wrong. So what he's talking about financial covenants is recourse or obligations of borrowers. So if you're lending money out or, you know, if you have, if it's a contractor or whatever it is, if you're, if they have a certain amount of time to deliver on a contractor, if somebody, if a tenant has a certain amount of time to pay you, or if, if you're a lender and a borrower has a certain amount of time to pay you, if you start being too lenient with those things in a good market because it's good and you know that there's really not a lot of risk associated with the macro, it can burn you in the fullness of time. And that number three is getting the incentives or it can be a skewing of the incentives. And he talks a lot about you know creating the proper incentives and you have to think about this it's all relationship management and i don't want people to get too crazy about it you know get all like really psychological or anything but think about the way that you incentivize your tenants or the way that they incentivize you like are you treating them well are you providing them with a place that they want to take pride in that they want to have pride of ownership in that they want to feel like it's their own be it if they're a residential or commercial tenant or whatever type of property that you're have you built the incentive system and the relationship with the users to encourage that type of relationship, right? Number two, he said, starting too large in a new market or asset class. Nick, do you want to take that one? Just Yeah, for sure. And and we'll touch on this quickly because I because I know we already kind of went through it. But you know, this this is a I think as real estate investors, a lot of us have grandiose ideas as to where we want to get to. And that's fantastic. I do too, full disclosure. And I've been a victim of this myself. But we have to proceed with caution because starting too large, levering up too much, taking on too many joint venture partners, and going to a market that you don't fully know or into an asset class that you don't fully understand can be detrimental to not only your growth, but you might not even be a real estate investor 
after that if one of those deals goes south. So, you know, I'm not saying dip your toes in the water, but I'm also not saying cannonball into the pool, right? There's a way to do things. And I think what Bruce Flat is getting at here is find out what you're good at and stick to it and grow from there because the growth will happen. The first one, I think let's have a quick chat about Dan, because this is a good one. And I think a lot of people can resonate with this one. (laughs) Believing that bad real estate would be okay if acquired cheaply. So let's, I'm going to throw an example at you. I found a house for $150,000 in, let's just say Sudbury, for instance. It's not a great place, but it's so cheap. So I couldn't say no to the deal. What are you going to tell me as a real estate investor focused agent? I think in most cases, I would encourage people, like I think people, a lot of people are thinking just about the price and not always thinking about the return, right? So if something's, especially if you're saying, you know, the, the, the choice of words there is is interesting, right? It's saying acquired cheaply, right? Not good value. And I think that there's an like important distinction between something being cheap and something being of good value. And I think that the value part, and I had this argument with somebody on TikTok today, but they were saying, argue oh, on you TikTok? Know, yeah, yeah, it's I weird. It was, it, was actually a, it was actually a boomer. I was like, and, oh. the, and he was like, yeah, he was like, oh, take an economics course. And I was like, oh, this is just so boomer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, I think it's an important distinction that the value piece, because he was, this guy was talking about price, right? He's like, oh, interest rates are never going to come down enough for prices to go back up. And I said, I'm not talking about prices. I'm talking about return rates of return, right? And investment returns, that's where you get value, not from price. Price, I, I, I really think about investing in real estate based on the rate of return only. Like I actually don't even really think about price that much. And I think a lot of people see the price tag and they, they want to get into it. That's thinking cheap, not thinking value. Love that. And just to add on to that a little bit further, acquiring something cheaply usually kind of applies by the principle, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. So if you picked up the deal of the century and and it kind of, you know, you're, you're wondering how you did it, I can tell you there's probably going to be some other issues in there, whether it's like a structural foundation issue that costs you $50,000 to fix, and there goes your entire budget and cap rate, or if it's you know, absolute nightmare tenants that aren't going to get out of there. Be careful because again, we've said this before and time and time again, real estate, good real estate assets are, the money is made on the way in. So acquiring something cheaply, that's a bit of a red flag for me. Dan, why don't we finish up these last two and get to the deal of the day? We got number 13 and number 14. Yeah. So number 13 says staying power and sufficient liquidity is key. The ability to maintain ownership through down periods, through longer term conservatively leveraged debt and or enormous amounts of liquidity, so cash, (laughs) are the keys to continue the miracle of compounding. I love that. Enormous amounts of liquidity. That's a that's a nice that can be a relatively enormous, right? So if you I think that like, you know, you have to think about where you're at as an investor. Is your loan to value too high? And I was looking at my portfolio coming into this year and seeing prices escalate. And I was saying, you know what, like, I'm not super comfortable with my leverage position with where things are right now. And I wanted to deleverage a bit. So I took some cash out and I wanted to have a bit of liquidity to be able to capitalize on on the down market, but also to be able to weather it because I felt, you know, I think we we're going to see some challenges with tenants based on the economy. I think we we're going to see some challenges 
with interest rate increases and I had quite a few variable mortgages. And so I saw a lot of these things coming and I was thinking about a lot of these principles on how valuable cash would be to me in this next period of time, even though I felt like I didn't want to hold cash because I felt it would inflate away. But it felt like that liquidity was of value. So being liquid allows you to weather the storm. And I, I talk about the storm maybe too much, but I think and talk about it a lot. And, I, and you, you'll see that I think when Flat talks about earlier in this, about how do you differentiate yourself from others? How do you establish a competitive advantage? I think the ability to manage downside risk is something that most others in Canadian real estate especially haven't necessarily had, at least if I'm just looking at what the broad market is doing. An easy way to differentiate is by managing downside risk and being aware of downside risk. And if you can be aware of those things, mitigate it, and be liquid in those periods, then you're at an advantage. Love that. Yeah. Liquidity in, in times like these could, could not be – the value cannot be understated. Let's move on to the 14th and final. The key to success is execution. Execute, execute, execute. Find or become the best in-class operator and have a well-thought-out strategy from day one and execute that plan. What do you think about that, Dan? Yeah, I think it's it's a summary of everything that he just said, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. but all of those things are what's going to make you be a good operator. Incentive system, being good to your tenants, having the ability to navigate downturns, being able to manage your liquidity, right? having staying power. Think about, use all of the information that you absorb from this show, that you absorb from other places on the internet, from your own research, from watching people like this, from having mentors, whatever it is, distill that. Really think about it and and have a plan for yourself. What am I, how many assets do I want to buy? How many units do I want to get under management? What kind of returns do I need to hit those targets? And then execute it, right? And get to get into the details if you have to. Some people need that. Yeah, and I think what I really like is he says, find or become the best in-class operator. Now, operator is a very general term. That could be whatever you are best at. So for instance, Dan and I are on a team and each member of that five-person team is the best in-class operator at what they do. And we all have different roles. So I don't don't do certain things anymore because I know that I have a best-in-class operator that does that for me. So if you can't do it yourself... Find other best in-class operators to bring onto your team. That was pretty sweet. Those are 14 principles to live by. But before we finish off the show today, you know, we got one last thing. And that is the deal of the day. And I got a nice juicy one here for everybody. I wanted to do something under 500,000. So I said, what the hell? I'm going to make it under 400,000. And then I was like, you know, let's push this a little bit. So I went under $350,000 and I wanted as many units as I could get. And I found a beautiful triplex with some mature trees that is tenanted already on 4026 50A Street in Red Deer, Alberta. I just thought, you know what, I'll put it in Alberta because by the time this episode airs, that's where you and I will physically be, Dan. The listing is for $339,000. So what I did here, and sorry, I'm just going to fumble this as I try to pull up the landlord application right here. Purchase price, $339,000. Monthly expected rent, $2,600. And that is between the three units at $850, $850, and 900 
we are looking at about a 7.34% cap rate for year one. Obviously, that cap rate increases, and this is being run at an 80-20 loan-to-value with a 6% mortgage rate, about $10,000 in closing costs. The occupancy rate was at 95. It's Red Deer, so I, I lowered it to 90, which did change things a little bit. You know, it's it's a pretty solid investment. Yeah, they, I think their vacancy rate's like 6% anyway. You're not far off there. Seems like a decent yeah. asset, man. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good little guy. So there's deals out there, folks. Keep looking, and uh, maybe we'll see this one when we're, when we're in Alberta. Yeah, I mean, my only thing in the Alberta perspective is you may not see a lot of like long-term price growth given that we do know from our episode about how is Canada going to house 500 immigrants, 500,000 immigrants, that Alberta is the only province that's actually capable of hitting their affordable construction target. So I don't, you're not going to see a, a scarcity of houses. So don't count on a ton of, when you're modeling this this deal like Nick did think about cap rate, don't think about IRR, don't think about long-term price growth, don't think about long-term rent growth, because you might not see a lot of those things in the Alberta market, given that even though they're going to see a lot of population growth, they're capable of building enough homes for that population. The only place in Canada that's capable of doing that, actually. Yeah, funnily enough. Now, again, capabilities and realities, you know, there there could be a bit of a difference between them, but we'll see. That's it today everybody thank you so much for listening it's been a great episode check out the sweaters make sure you get one for your favorite landlord this christmas and we'll see you soon thanks so much for listening the canadian real estate investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice always do your own due diligence nick hill is a mortgage agent with premier mortgage center license number 10317 and a partner in gnh mortgage group Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.